0: Good morning. So it's Amos chapter 7, the whole chapter, page 1397. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested, and just as the late crops were coming up. When they had stripped the land clean, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen, the Lord said. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Then I cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. So the Lord relented. This will not happen either, the sovereign Lord said. This is what he showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb, with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, What do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people, Israel. I will spare them no longer. The high places of Isaac will be destroyed, and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. With my sword, I will rise against the house of Jeroboam. Then Amzai, the priest of Bethel, sent a message to Jeroboam, king of Israel. Amos is raising a conspiracy against you in the very heart of Israel. The land cannot bear all his words. For this is what Amos is saying, Jeroboam will die by the sword and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. Then Amaziah said to Amos, Get out, you seer. Go back to the land of Judah. Earn your bread there and do your prophesying there. Don't prophesy any more in Bethel because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amos answered Amaziah, I was neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, but I was a shepherd and I also took care of sycamore fig trees. But the Lord took me from tending the flock and said to me, go prophesy to my people Israel. Now then, hear the word of the Lord. You say, do not prophesy against Israel and stop preaching against the descendants of Isaac. Therefore, this is what the Lord says, Your wife will become a prostitute in the city, and your sons and daughters will fall by the sword. Your land will be measured and divided up, and you yourself will die in a pagan country, and Israel will surely go into exile away from their native land. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks for reading that, Pam. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to consider these words now. Uh, But as we do that, how about we pray and ask that God would help us understand what it is that we read. Would you pray with me? Father God, just as your word broke through the darkness and chaos and brought the world into existence. Just as your word established your covenant with your people and brought your people into existence. Lord, we ask now that your word would break into our hearts and bring faith into existence for those who are yet to trust you. And for those here who do, Lord, we pray that you would grow them, that you would move them to trust you more, to rely on you fully, and to praise you for who you are. And Lord, we ask this in the name of Jesus, the incarnate word. Amen. There's a bit of a uh, an idea that's become prominent in, in public debate, I think at least in this country, but I think elsewhere too in recent times, and that's the idea of being on the wrong side of history. You've heard that line thrown about, haven't you? When we had the marriage plebiscite, into same-sex marriage, uh, the message from the Yes campaign was, was a very strong, don't be on the wrong side of history. Don't hold to a view that the court of public opinion will very clearly declare false and wrong. We saw it with the the marriage plebiscite. They they actually uh, looked back and 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 applied it to the abolition of slavery. They said there were people there who tried to say that slavery was good. They were on the wrong side of history. I've heard it uh, in in debates about the voice to parliament, actually from from both sides, don't be on the wrong side of history, whichever side that is. Now, it's a good ploy because it, it makes people fear, doesn't it? It makes people fear being exposed as having a view that is wrong. Wouldn't it be horrible to be found on the wrong side of history? Well, friends, today we're looking at Amos chapter 7, and the message for us is this. Wouldn't it be horrible to be on the ultimate wrong side of history? See, not just found guilty in the court of public opinion, but found guilty by the judge of all the earth. Wouldn't it be horrible to have your life exposed in the only court that matters? Wouldn't it be horrible to miss out on the life that God intended us to live? Well, today in Amos 7, we're going to see what it is that makes the difference. What it is that divides those who live on the wrong side of history and the right. So what is it that makes all the difference? Well, let's let's have a look at Amos 7 and find out. If you have a look in your Bibles, you'll see Amos 7, it's a new section in the book, and it's focused on four visions which God gives to the prophet Amos. Now, they're easy to see because Amos uses the same words to introduce each of them. Verse 1, he says, this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. And then again in verse 4, verse 7, and then in chapter 8, which we'll look at next week, this is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. God gives Amos four visions and they all share something about God's judgment. Now in the first two visions, the thing that God shows to Amos was a picture of absolute devastation. Verse one, this is what the sovereign Lord showed me. He was preparing swarms of locusts after the king's share had been harvested and just as the late crops were coming up. God gives Amos a vision of locusts ravaging the Israelites' crops and destroying their only source of food. Now, the first thing for us to notice here is that this is God's doing. You see, Amos sees God preparing these swarms of locusts. The Hebrew word used here is the word you would use to describe a potter forming something from clay. God is sculpting these instruments of destruction, which is to say that God is, God is not passive when it comes to his judgment. I think sometimes we like to think that God's judgment is, is just God kind of turning away, allowing something bad to happen. Well, Amos makes it very clear. God makes it very clear in this vision. This destruction is sent from and controlled by God. Amos tells us in his vision that God sent these locusts after the king's share had been harvested. Now, just like the tax office comes and takes the first part of your income before it lands in your bank account, in Amos's day, the king taxed the crops. But when the king eats the first harvest and then locusts come and eat what's left... Well, there's nothing left for the people but famine and starvation. In a world of supermarkets, it's kind of hard for us to get our heads around, but this is a picture of total devastation. This would have destroyed God's people. Well, it's an image that gets even worse with Amos' second vision in verse 4. Have a look. This is what the Sovereign Lord showed me. The sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire. It dried up the great deep and devoured the land. Now, I'm sure you've seen on the news this week uh, the the devastating fires in Hawaii. I think I I saw the death toll is up to 80. It's, It's absolutely devastating. And I read during the week stories of people who who had nowhere to run, that the only place they could go was into the ocean. And so they were literally running from flames into the sea. Or here Amos sees a vision of a fire so destructive that even the ocean could not protect you from it. You see, this is a fire that consumes the great deep. It soaks up the ocean's It is a fire like nothing else. And again, it's a picture of total destruction. And again, it is the sovereign Lord who brings it. God gives Amos these two visions of Israel being being completely destroyed. And both times, Amos pleads to God for mercy. You see it in verse 2, Amos prays, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. In verse 5, again, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He is so small. Now, notice what Amos doesn't say. He doesn't say, Lord, stop. They don't deserve it. He doesn't say, Lord, stop. Jacob is so good. He knows he can't say that. The last six chapters of Amos have given us more than enough evidence to show that Israel do deserve God's judgment and that they are not good. Amos can't find any compelling evidence why God should relent. And so what does he do? He, he begs. He pleads for mercy. Lord, forgive. They, they can't handle your judgment. Lord, stop. They're too small. They're too weak. Now, this isn't how Israel saw themselves, is it? We saw last week, Israel saw themselves as as the prominent, the foremost men of the the foremost nation. They, They thought they were impressive. They thought they were strong. They thought they were powerful. But Amos sees them for who they really are small and weak and so he pleads to God for mercy and God hears Amos' prayer the Lord relented from sending the locusts in verse 3 this will not happen the Lord relented from sending the fire in verse 6 this will not happen either Amos pleads for mercy and God shows mercy. But before we move on and consider this third vision, I want us to pause here for a moment. Because these verses, they actually teach us something really important about prayer. Do you ever wonder why God wants you to pray? I mean, I, I speak often to Christians who know that they should pray. They know that God asks them to pray. But where they struggle is actually wondering why. <laughs> they don't actually understand how, how prayer could change anything. And, and you can understand it, right? Maybe you've thought this way. God is sovereign. He's in control of all things. He, he knows what every, how everything is going to play out. What, what difference can our prayers make? God doesn't need our prayers to be able to make things good. He's quite capable of that himself. What difference do our prayers make? Here's where Amos 7 is really helpful. Do you think God was always going to relent? I think he was. Remember who who these people are in Amos. These are God's covenant people. These are the people that God has promised to be faithful to. These are the people that God has stood beside at the altar and promised his love for. God has said, these people are my people. I will be their God. Is he going to abandon his people now? I don't think so. But then you have to ask the question, why is God showing Amos this vision? Was he just bluffing? Was it an empty threat? Is it like when you tell your kids that unless they clean their room, you're cancelling Christmas? No. The vision's real. God wants Amos to know, he wants Israel to know, indeed he wants us to know that total destruction is exactly what sin deserves. The locusts the fire, these are exactly the kinds of things that Israel deserved from God. But God's intention was always to show mercy. God's intention was always to give his wayward people more time to repent. And the thing that he chose to use to reveal his mercy was Amos's plea for mercy. Do you see, Amos's prayer is all part of God's sovereign plan. And so, brothers and sisters, this is why we pray. In his sovereignty, God has chosen to use your prayers to bring about his purposes. The, the reason Israel was spared destruction here was because God, in his sovereignty, used Amos' prayer for mercy to show mercy. The reason that you here are a child of God is because God in his sovereignty chose to use the prayers of probably dozens of people who are praying for your salvation to bring you to salvation. And friends, the reason that the new creation will be filled with people from every tribe and nation worshipping King Jesus is because God in his sovereignty chooses to use the prayers of his to bring them there. And so friends, let's pray for them. I I challenged you last week to pray for the people that you know who don't yet know Jesus. Now, if you didn't do it, let me challenge you again. (laughs) Please pray. Pray for your friends. Pray for your neighbours. Pray for the guy that lives across the street from you. Pray that they will not stay enemies with god but friends if you did do it keep praying wouldn't it be amazing to see this church be a church of people who who seriously pray for the lost and plead for god's mercy on their behalf The first two visions, they show us God's mercy. But God's mercy doesn't mean he will ignore sin. And so in verse 7, God gives Amos another vision. This is what the Lord showed me. The Lord was standing by a wall that had been built true to plumb with a plumb line in his hand. And the Lord asked me, what do you see, Amos? A plumb line, I replied. Then the Lord said, Look, I am setting a plumb line among my people Israel. I will spare them no longer. Now, if you've ever worked in construction, you'll know a plumb line is a tool for checking that the thing that you've built is standing straight. Now, these days we have laser levels and things like that but the old school method was a weight on a string and if you held it next to the wall you could see whether the wall was straight and true if there's a big gap between your string and your wall well you've got a big problem in this vision Amos sees God standing next to a wall holding a plumb line and God explains this vision by saying he's going to do the same with his people He's going to hold them up against his standard to see whether they're standing straight and true. But notice in verse 7, we see the Lord was standing next to a wall that had been built true to plumb. You see, Israel was the people that God had built, the people that God had established. And when he built them, he built them straight and true. They were a people built according to his standard. They were a people shaped by his word. And so now God comes along to check whether his people are still standing straight and true. Has the wall leaned? Is the wall deviating? Are they building an entirely different wall altogether? Well, wherever God finds gaps between his people and his standard, God says, I will spare them no longer. This third vision is again a vision of judgment, but this time it's different. Through the locusts and the fire, they were images of devastation, of total destruction. But with the plumb line, we see a discriminating judge a judge who divides the people, a judge who exposes and reveals the sin of his people. In verse 9, we get the results. Because when God holds his plumb line up against his own people, there are two points where the wall has deviated from the standard, where his people have deviated far from his word. The first point is their religion, and we saw this a few weeks ago, didn't we? Israel's religion was shallow, it was self centered, it was empty. Israel claimed to be worshipping God, but in reality, they were just playing church. The second thing is, is their rulers. Their rulers are not, are not leading God's people in godliness. These, these rulers are lazy, they're indulgent, they're greedy, and they deny justice to the oppressed. And so Israel's religion and Israel's rulers, they are the two points where Israel is neither straight nor true. And so in verse 9, God gives his verdict. He says, the high places of Isaac will be destroyed and the sanctuaries of Israel will be ruined. That, that's the religion, the high places, the sanctuaries. And then he continues, with my sword, I will rise against the rulers, the house of Jeroboam. It is Israel's religion and Israel's rulers that bear the brunt of God's discriminating judgment. And so what we have in verses 10 to 17, Amos interrupts the visions to to actually give us an example to show us just how far Israel's religion and rulers have deviated from the word of God. Because in verse 10 we meet Amaziah, the priest at Bethel, and as a priest it was his job to actually bring God's people closer to God. But instead, Amaziah goes to the king to complain about Amos and to try to silence his message. Now, like Amos, Amaziah knows that Israel can't bear God's judgment. He says that the land cannot bear Amos' words. But instead of repenting, instead of running to God for mercy... Well, Amaziah just buries his head in the sand, or in fact, he attacks Amos. He tries to get rid of him. He says, go back to your own country. Go go earn your bread down south. Go back to Judah and prophesy there. Don't prophesy anymore at Bethel, because this is the king's sanctuary and the temple of the kingdom. Amaziah tries to wield the power of the king to silence Amos. But Amos knows he serves a greater king. And so like the Apostle Peter does in Acts chapter 5, Amos stands up to the religious authority and he continues to speak the word of God. And the word that he speaks in verse 17 is a word of judgment against Amaziah. the priest at Bethel finds himself on the wrong side of history. Well, friends, there's, there's one thing that makes all the difference between those whom God punishes and those whom God spares. One thing that divides those on the right side of history and the wrong, and it's this. We see it here in Amos 7. It is how you respond to, to the Word of God. Amos 7 is a a chapter where Amos brings the Word of God. Amos 7 shows us God's people as a wall built true to plumb, a wall, a people established according to the Word of God. God's promises were their foundation. God's law was their instruction. But they had drifted away from the Word when God held the plumb line of his word up against his people, the gaps were obvious. Their religion was nothing like the worship that God wanted from them. Their rulers were nothing like the pattern of godly leadership that God had given them. And so for their failure to keep God's word, Israel was sent into exile and for his attempt to silence God's word, Amaziah too was punished. The standard by which God judges his people is his word. Which gives us a question that we need to ask ourselves how will we measure up? What will God see when he holds his plumb line up against your life? Will God see someone who loves him with all their heart? Will he see someone who loves their neighbor with all the energy and intensity with which they love themselves? I don't know about you, but I know when God holds his plumb line up against my own life, there will be huge gaps. When I compare my life to God's standard, the, my flaws are exposed. There's character flaws. I'm greedy. I'm selfish. I'm quick to speak. I'm even quicker to get angry. There are moral failures, times when I've lied and cheated and stole. But worst of all, when I hold my life up against God's standard, I see a life lived to please myself more often than it is to please God. Now, I suspect I'm not alone here. In fact, I know I'm not alone because Scripture tells me there is no one righteous, not even one. When God holds his plumb line up against my life, against your life, when he holds his plumb line up amongst the people of the world, No one will measure up. So what do we do? Well, we can do what Amos did and beg, plead to God for mercy. And God in his mercy has relented. He has given us more time to repent. But one day judgment will come. But here's the thing. See, just like Israel had a mediator in Amos, someone who prayed to God on their behalf, we also have a mediator. In fact, we have a better mediator. Romans 8 says we have Christ Jesus at the right hand of God interceding for us. 1 John 2 says Jesus is the advocate for those who sin. Hebrews 7 says Jesus lives to intercede for us. And so just like Amos prayed to God on behalf of the people of Israel, the Bible says that Jesus is constantly praying to the Father for us. He's constantly there before the Father pleading our case. But there's a huge difference because Amos, he prayed to God and the only thing he could lay before God was Israel's weakness. He begged God for his mercy. He said, Father, forgive them. They're so weak and pathetic. But unlike Amos, when Jesus advocates for us, when he intercedes for us, he says, Father, forgive them. But he doesn't point to our weakness. You know what he points to? He points to his own strength. Because when God's righteous judgment is revealed, when the vision comes of God punishing our sin, Jesus steps in and he says, Father, forgive. But then he points to his own death and says, the debt is paid. He says, Sovereign Lord, forgive, punish me. Sovereign Lord, stop I've taken their wrath. Friends, if you want to find yourself on the right side of history, if you want to find yourself living in the new eternal creation, the thing that makes all the difference is how you respond to the word of God, the word of God who became flesh. And so the question is, will we be like Amaziah and silence him? Will we continue to refuse to bow the knee to the judge of all the earth? Or will you respond rightly? Will you see that when you hold your life up against Jesus, the perfect standard, that we fall short? And so then will you cling to him for his mercy? Will you see that no matter how hard you try, you are unable to meet God's perfect standard and to run to the one who intercedes for you? Will you count yourself in Christ Jesus so that when the Father looks upon you, he sees Jesus standing straight and true? Let me pray. Father God, we don't often praise you for your judgment. We praise and worship you for your love, for your grace, for your kindness. But we very rarely praise you for your judgment. But Lord, we do. We are so thankful that you are a God who is just. A God who sees sin and cannot let sin go unpunished. We thank you that when you look upon this world You see people who have rejected you, who have wandered from you, who have rebelled against you, and yet you still show mercy and that you are giving time for people to come to repentance. Lord, we pause and remember and pray for the people that we know who are currently living in opposition to you. For our friends, for members of our own families, for those that we work with, for the people we see out in the street, Lord, we plead for your mercy. We ask that you would make your son known to them. We pray that they too, like us, may see their sin, might see that they have failed to meet your perfect standard but we pray that you might bring them to repent, to trust in Jesus for the forgiveness of their sins and find life in him. But Lord, we thank you that Jesus did intercede for us, that he stepped in and bore the judgment that we deserved, that he would say, Sovereign Lord, stop and punish me. We praise you for that. And we ask that you would help us continue to cling to his mercy every day of our lives. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.